I'm so happy to be here. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21 is what I'm going to cover this morning. Um, and here's, and we'll, what we'll do is I'm going to set the text up and then we'll, uh, we'll pray, we'll read through it, uh, and then we'll dive right in. But um, let's, as we're turning to the book of Romans, or yeah, to Romans chapter 5, I'm going to go ahead and do just a quick review really quickly over just some hidden, some wave tops of Romans up until where we are, uh, just so we can set a little bit of context uh, for what uh, we're doing here this morning. Um, and I, I say it, I'll say it every time I preach, like context is really important. It's like king, because if we don't understand context, we don't understand verses, we don't understand where they sit, we don't understand the genre of literature they're sitting in, we don't understand who they're written to, we don't understand when they're written, we don't understand any of those things, we're going to uh, take the Bible and we're going to apply it in such a way that suits our needs and our purposes and our selfishness and rather than what the Lord has for us. So the reason why, uh, you know, Oaks goes through books of the Bible, like line by line, section by section, is not because we don't, we have, like, we don't really know what we're doing, or they, you, Chris doesn't know what he's doing, you know. Yeah, that's actually true. Maybe he does. Maybe nobody knows what they're doing. But the reason why is because there's, there's typically a flow to an argument. There's a flow to what's going on. When, when you're reading Hebrews, as you're, you're going to get into over the next, you know, Lord knows how long, it's, you know, they, like, it's... It's a set, like it's it's a, it's a specific section and chunk of the Bible, you know. And it's easy to run straight to Hebrews eleven verse one and talk about faith, uh, and skip over one through ten, because faith, you know, it suits us in the moment. So context is really important. So we're in Romans chapter five is what we're going to touch today. But if we look through the whole uh, book of Romans, we can see that you know Paul obviously was writing this book to the to the church in Rome, really wanting to go see them. He starts out in chapter one by sort of defining what sin is, and he sort of sets the stage of what sin looks like in the life of the unbeliever. And he goes through and he says that sin is the fundamental disordering of, where, um, of, of the creation and the creator. Sorry. It's a fundamental disordering. So if you, we look in Romans chapter 1, we can see that the main Thing, the main indictment that Paul has and that God has towards humanity is not that they do bad things, but it's that they elevate the creation over the creator. We take the created thing and we put it over top of the creator God who is blessed forever. Amen. So the fundamental, the fundamental bottom layer of what sin is is not you thinking wrongly. It's not you doing things incorrectly. It's not you losing your temper every once in a while. It's that, it's that you've elevated something over Christ himself. We do this um, all the time. We elevate our comfort over the creator of the universe. We elevate the pursuit of money or pleasure or success over God. Elevate our kids' success over our commitment to the Lord. And the list goes on and on and on. And then at the end of chapter one, Paul illustrates how this works itself out practically through a list of sins um, of the disordering of creation and creator. We take the created thing and we put it over top of the creator. And then in chapter 2, he indicts the Jewish people specifically for thinking that they're better than the Gentiles because they, do, they don't do all of the wrong things. He accuses them of judging the sinner about doing the very things they condemn in others. So God's righteous judgment is on display when he speaks to the Jews about the reliance on the law for righteousness. But ultimately, their judgment is warranted because they uphold the law in theory. But in practice, they disobey the law and they dishonor God. Chapter three really dives into the fact that there is no one who is righteous. 
He really digs into, if you really thought that you or your heritage, the fact that you were born into a Christian home, the fact that you don't do bad things or you don't do bad enough things, God, like Paul really zeroes in here and says, there is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the righteousness of God is not found in obeying the law or doing all of the right things. Paul slides into chapter four and he says that the righteousness of God, the righteousness that we need, the righteousness that we cannot, we cannot attain on our own, it comes through faith in Jesus. It comes through faith. It doesn't come through works. It doesn't come through us doing all of the right things or being the right person, but it comes through Christ's amazing gift in us. So lastly, that brings us to the first half of chapter five where we can see that we have peace with God through faith in Jesus. We can see God's mercy in saving us while we were still sinners. And Christ has reconciled us to God through his death on the cross. And we can see the love of God for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. Now, here's just a quick side note. Some people want to know if God loves them. Like you want some evidence that God loves them, that God loves you, that God cares for you, that God has um, an affection for you, for you to come back to him. Paul, in chapter five, he says that we can see the love of God in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You want to see the love of God? You look at the cross. You look at the fact that while each and every one of us were undeserving sinners, God still came to the table and he still saved us. He still redeemed us. He still restored us. He still transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. If you want to see what God's love is for you, you can look at the fact that God of the universe humbled himself and died for somebody who did not deserve it. And that's every single one of us in this room. So if you're feeling like you don't deserve the love of God, guess what? You are correct. But the beauty of that is God knows that you don't deserve his love. Christ knows that you don't deserve anything that is good. But yet he still came to the table and he still loved and he served and he laid down his life. And in each and every one of our lives, as a little bonus, we should have the same mindset in dealing with those around us who do not deserve or we don't feel like they deserve our love or our affection or our forgiveness. There are people in my life that I feel like do not deserve me treating them nicely. That's just how I feel. But, I, but if I felt, but, if, but I'm not acting very Christ-like in that moment because while I was still a sinner, Christ still came to the table to save me. And if there are people in my life who are still sinners, that are still sinning against me, how much more so should I forgive and serve and love those who don't deserve it. So Paul works that out in the first half of chapter five, and then at the back half of chapter five, verses 12 through 21 specifically, this section is one of the most complex and difficult sections in the book of Romans, and many commentators say that it may be one of the more complex sections in the New Testament writings, which makes me wonder why the heck did I do this? But Paul says some really interesting things in this section. And, and other pastors, like if you, if you go and listen to John Piper's like, sec, like say, okay, type in Romans chapter 5, 12 through 21 for John Piper. He preaches five or six sermons on this particular text, partially because he's John Piper. And that's just like how he rolls with most things. But the other reason is it is a highly complex text. And it seems like as we read through it, it seems like Paul doesn't know what he's doing. 
he goes down this rabbit trail, then he comes back, and then he's comparing something, and then he's not comparing something. And then he says something about the Jews, and then he doesn't say it. Like, he works, he really seems seemingly ping-pongs around all the way through here, but I think there's something really important that we can see as we take the section as a whole so that we can take a look and see what the God is actually showing us. I think we can actually see the fact that our condition is a particular way, that Christ's love for us is works itself out in a particular way, and that we have hope and and peace through him uh, dying on the cross for us. So, all of that to say, let's go ahead and read the text, then I'm going to pray, and then I have three, I've got three points, three points that I'm going to pull out of, out of this, uh, this section this morning. I, I'm going to go ahead and read the, the entirety of chapter five, so back up to, to verse one. I want us to get the whole flow of what's going on, mainly because the beginning of the section says, therefore, and whenever you see the word therefore, you ask, what's it there for? That's a pretty, it's a little thing that you can, if you see the word therefore, it's not just there. Like there's a reason why, because it's typically connecting two thoughts. So let's start at the beginning of chapter five and run all the way through. Therefore, ironically. <laughs> all right, let's go to the first, let's go to the beginning of chapter four. Oh my gosh, it's amazing. I didn't realize that it said therefore at the beginning of chapter five. All right, there, we'll just skip it. Since... Since we have been, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare to even to die. But God shows his love for us. This is what I was talking about. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now justified by his blood, and much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And more than that, we shall also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Verse 12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if by one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. 
For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you, God, and we praise you. God, thank you for your love for us and in that while we were yet sinners, you died uh, on the cross, that you took our sin, you took our shame, you took our guilt, and you made us whole and you made us new. God, I pray that you would speak powerfully through your word today. God, that you would open up our hearts to be able to hear what you have for us. God, the things that we, the blind spots in our hearts, God, that we are not aware of, God, I pray that you would illuminate those to us. God, I pray that you would help us understand and comprehend and process through and ultimately become what you have for us today. God, we love you and we thank you. We ask these things in your beautiful name. Amen. Amen. All right, we're going to take this in three sections. Three sections today, which make up my three points. The first point is sin entered the world through Adam. That's the first observation, the first point that we have that Paul makes here in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over the transgressions of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. So Paul begins this section by bringing up Adam's sin and how that impacted the world in a negative way. He makes this assertion that Adam's one sin brought sin and death into the world. Now, I'm sure we're all familiar with the story, but we'll make sure that we cover it here, that at the beginning of time, Adam and Eve were in, the, were in the Garden of Eden. Adam was created by God. Eve was created by God. They were in the Garden, and they were able to do literally whatever they wanted to do except for one thing. They were not allowed to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So you're, just think of this. There's this, this paradise. Adam's able to do whatever he wants. He's naming animals, whatever the heck he wants to name them. Eve's, Eve is just like doing her thing. Literally, like the world, there's nothing wrong with the world at this point. And, but there's one thing that they're not allowed to do. They're not allowed to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So what ends up happening is they end up going and gravitating towards the one thing that they're not allowed to do. So they go and they take and they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and sin enters into the world and it fractures humanity forever. And just as an aside, this is literally them elevating a created thing, a fruit on a tree, over the creator who has blessed them with all good things. Like this is the fundamental core problem that every single one of us have. Had it from Adam and Eve all the way till now. And Paul's making the argument that that same sin that they created is the same sin that we that we commit every single day of our lives. So sin enters into the world. He the world is fractured in a very, very, uh, I don't even know the word. It's like, in the, it's just to the very DNA that we have in our bodies. Sin has fractured the world and sin has entered into each and every one of our natures. Now, Paul isn't saying here that Adam is simply a bad example for all of us. 
It was like, so humanity is just bad because they looked to their father, Adam, and it was like, well, Adam does bad things, so I should do bad things. Like, he's not, Paul's not making an argument that sin entered into the world through Adam, so we just sort of repeated it. It's fundamentally part of who we are. Now, some of us are probably saying, well, that's not fair. Like, I'm not naturally sinful. I make my own choices. I can make good choices if I want to. I don't have tendencies to sin. Well, Romans chapter 3 has already established that you've already sinned at this point of your life, which proves the point that you're already a sinner. But we can also see this, that on the that we are gravitating towards sin. It's not just like we do bad things, but we our tendency is to do bad things. Like, my tendency is to eat Skittles all the time. And they make me feel horrible, and they make my stomach hurt, and they make my thinking all blurry because I'm eating literal chemicals that taste amazing. <laughs> but, like, my, I'm gravitating towards that instead of gravitating toward, like, a Caesar salad, for instance. No, like, there are, this is a very silly example, but, like, we, but we are, we do tend to have a, a gravitational pull towards the wrong thing and not towards the right thing. That's not an accident. That's not just because, like, you know, we had bad parents or whatever. It's because we had a bad parent named Adam whose sin has been imputed to us through his sin. Now, I was talking to, uh, to a friend about this particular text. It's Clay Slavin. And uh, I was, like, talking about, I was working this point out, kind of talking to him. And, you know, in classic, if you knew Clay, you would appreciate this. He goes, prove it. Like, prove that, you know, prove this point to me. And I'm like, okay. So here is a very um, ridiculous yet fun illustration of inherent original sin. So a few years back, I'm, I'm working on one of my motorcycles in my garage, just minding my own business, turning a wrench, trying to just like enjoy turning a wrench, like not doing anything else. And, I'm, and the kids are sort of around, you know, like you can feel their presence, but you can't see them, you know. And so they're, they're around, and I'm just doing my thing, and I hear a blood-curdling scream, like a scream like I have never heard before, like horror movie level scream happens. And so terrifying. So I run outside, I run outside, I find my oldest son, Mitchell. He's, he's five, now, five, almost six now, but he was, I don't know, maybe three then, four. And he's just crying and crying and crying and crying and crying. And it's, and it's not like one of those, like, I'm kind of fussing, crying. You know, you can differentiate the cries, like the real ones and like the kind of real ones. You know, this was like, I can't catch my breath, kind of cry. So I, I'm like, I, I go, I pick him up, and I get a closer look. And I'm, I look at his face, and I see what looks like a really bad case of ringworm. But it actually, upon closer examination, it's a perfect imprint of all of Jude's, my second son's, cheat teeth. Just, just perfect. Like, you could have done, you could have, you could have set Invisalign, like, <laughs> like, off of this imprint. You know, I could have sent Mitchell's face to the orthodontist and gotten a set of braces for Jude. Like that was how, like that was how, that was how bad it was. And like, and so it turns out, it turns out, this is so funny. It turns out that Mitchell had something that Jude wanted. So guess what Jude did not do? Jude didn't say, Mitchell, I really would love to have that toy. Would you like to share it with me? Uh, he, he's, or he didn't say, look, oh, it looks like you're having a nice time with that toy, Mitchell. You know what? I'm going to wait. I'm just going to wait until you're done playing with it, and then you know what? Maybe I'll have a turn with it 
or whatever. No, Jude tackled him, pinned him to the ground, and bit his face because he wanted something. He wanted a, he wanted a toy. And now the lesson here is that I should have taught Mitchell never let anybody get close enough to you to bite your face. Like, that's the lesson. Like you got to protect your face and your neck at all times. But the, but, the true, but the true lesson here, obviously, is that I didn't have to teach Jude to bite Mitchell. Like, that wasn't a lesson, you know, in life where I was like, hey, you know, if you really want something, like, just bite him. Like, they'll give it to you, you know. And it's not even like he sees that sort of behavior in our home. Like, it's not like if Brooke has something that I want, I bite her and she gives it to me, you know, allegedly. Like, so it's... It's like it's not like she sees like it's not like he just sees this going on or whatever in his in his life. It's coming out of where? It's coming out of his heart. He wants what he wants, and he's willing to do the wrong thing to get what he wants. His internal like mindset is not grace and mercy and compassion and patience and self-control. His internal mindset is. I'm going to bite Mitchell so that I can get what I want. And it doesn't matter to me whether he, you know, is going to literally be scarred for life. Like, it just doesn't matter. Adam's selfishness is innate in my children. Adam's selfishness of wanting to be God himself, elevating the created thing over the creator, elevating his own decision-making over the creator God's decision-making that's been carried all the way through the generations into my children, and it's been carried all the way through to you and to me. Paul's making an argument here that Adam is the one through whom sin entered the world. Now, the question, I guess, becomes why is Paul going sort of down this road of saying, of like focusing in on Adam? You know, like, what, like, haven't we already covered the sinfulness of man? You know, like, haven't we already covered that sin is us elevating the creation of the creator? Sin is us judging those who are, you know, seemingly worse than us while we are worse people ourselves? Isn't sin the fact that we've all fallen short of the glory of God? Isn't sin the fact that we don't have faith in God, but we have faith in ourselves? Like, hasn't Paul already done this? I mean, we're at chapter five, and he's already pretty much established that we're sinners. Here's, here's why I think that Paul is doing this. Paul is starting to create a contrast between two people, two people that we can be in. We can live our lives in Adam, in sinfulness and in selfishness and in elevation of ourselves over God, or we can be in Christ, where we are laying down our lives, where we are submitting ourselves to the will of God, and we are ultimately living under his lordship and his headship. Our lives are either underneath of Adam or underneath of Jesus. And what Paul does is he starts comparing these two men to one another in both positive and negative ways. And, I, and, and here's, here's why I think he's doing this. When you stick something next to something, this is, that's a very generic thing for me to say, stick something next to something. If you have an item and you stick it next to something else, you, what do you begin to do immediately? You start comparing them. Like it's just part of our brain. Like you stick something here and you stick something here, your brain is eventually immediately going to start comparing and contrasting. So if you have like you have a rose and then you have like a dandelion, you're gonna you're gonna notice that there are differences between those two flowers. They're the same thing in their essence, but they're different in the way that they look. Now here's here's a probably a better example than that. So like think of a think of a chihuahua, 
like a, like a dog, the chihuahua. Everybody knows what a chihuahua is. Like, you just picture one in your mind. You've got short, stubby legs. You've got short hair. You've got, like, a bark that just can drive you, you know, insane. We call them, we call them ankle biters back where I come from. Like, the, like you, so you picture, you picture a chihuahua. Like, you understand what that looks like. You, you know it's a dog. You can appreciate the chihuahua for what it is. So let's stick, let's stick a Bernese mountain dog next to the chihuahua. My personal favorite dog is a Bernese mountain dog. You, all of a sudden, you're appreciating different things about those dogs because you've created a contrast. You can see that the Bernese mountain dog has long legs and long hair and is generally like an emotional and needy dog. You know, a lot of slobber, a lot of all the things that go along with Bernese mountain dogs. But when you stick those two things next to each other, now you're really realizing, oh my gosh, like the... That chihuahua is a lot shorter than I thought. Oh, the, the hair is a, lot, is a lot finer than I thought it was. Oh, the bark is a little different than what it was. This is an imperfect example, but when we set those two things next to one another, we have a greater understanding of both of those things. So what Paul does here is he's setting Adam and he's setting Jesus right next to one another and he's starting to compare and contrast the two so that we can see and understand and and like embrace how amazing Christ is. Just looking at Christ by himself is great. Being able, but Paul, what Paul does here is Paul takes Christ and sticks him next to Adam, and all this does is it just glorifies Christ all the more. It helps us see the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ as compared to where we came from. Sorry, I'm beating that point to death, but that's really what that's what Paul is doing here in this text. So, second section here, 15 through 17, that's my second point, is that Adam and Christ, <clears throat> excuse me, Adam and Christ are contrasted. So, so, Paul is starting to contrast or contrast these two men next to one another. So, the first point that we had was that sin was brought into the world through Adam, that's that section. The second section is 15 through 17, Adam and Christ are contrasted next to one another. Let's go ahead and read, but... But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, by, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace in the free gift of righteousness reign in the life in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So we can see here in this middle section how Paul begins to show how Adam and Christ are not the same. He's, he's showing Adam and Christ are not the same. There are, there are not similarities in some of these places. And what Paul is doing is he's using expressions like not like and much more. We'll, we'll, we'll see these here in the text, but he's like, Christ, like, this is not like that. This is much more than that. It's Paul saying Adam and Christ are not the same. And Paul is showing that Adam is inferior to Christ by showing how they're not the same by comparison. So let's look at verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. So the free gift of Christ is, is not like the trespass of Adam. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more 
have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So the free gift is not like the trespass. Why? For if many people died through one man's trespass, more people will have the abundance of grace in Jesus. The very nature of the actions of Christ and Adam are different. The very nature of them are different. Adam's sin was one of selfishness and pride. He took the fruit, he ate it. He did not trust what God knew best, but he thought that he knew better than God. Christ's free gift was one of self-sacrifice. Christ's free gift was giving himself up in full trust to God. Adam's trespass brought death, and Christ's gift brings abundant life. What we can see in verse 16, the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So the free gift is not like the one man's sin. Why? One man's sin brought condemnation to the entire world. Jesus' gift brought justification. So we can already see there, like Adam's gift brought death, Christ's gift brings life. The consequences of Adam's actions and Christ's actions are now what Paul is focusing on on here. Adam's trespass brought condemnation. Christ's gift brings justification to those who believe. But one man's singular sin brought sin and death into the world. So like, just think about this. Okay, we have one man, Adam, brought sin and death into the world, and now there's a lot of sin and death in the world, right? Every single person who's ever been born is now full of sin and death. So the logic would have it that there would have to be multiple sacrifices for all of those people and all of that sin and death in order to undo the one man's sin. The one man's sin created a cascade of sin. So in, in, in the mind of the reader, they're thinking, well, that means that, that there has to be individual payment for every single one of those sins, right? Like every single one of those people need to be saved. Every one of those people need to be, like there's got to be a lot of sacrifices to get there. But what Paul is saying is that Christ is so majestic. Christ's sacrifice is so effective. Christ's glory is just so amazing that he can die one time and he can save multitudes and multitudes and multitudes of sinners. Adam had to sin one time to screw it up for everybody. Christ died one time to save us all. I love how Cranfield puts this. He says, that one single misdeed should be answered by judgment. This is perfectly understandable. But that the accumulated sins and guilt of all the ages should be answered by God's free gift, this is the miracle of miracles, utterly beyond human comprehension. I'm going to read that one again because it's just, it's kind of, it's clunky, but it's good. That one, just the fact that one single misdeed should be answered by judgment, this is perfectly understandable. So we understand that. One misdeed, judgment. Got it. But that the accumulated sins and guilt of all of the ages should be answered by Christ's free gift, that is the miracle of miracles. It's utterly beyond human comprehension. God's gift brought abundance even in the face of of a multitude of sins, and God's gift brings abundance in every single one of us in the face of the multitude of sins in our own lives. That's the beauty of the gospel. 
the multitude of sins that we have in our lives do not need to be paid individually by us, but they have been paid by the free gift of Jesus Christ. Verse 17, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigns through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Now we see here another similar contrast. Because of one man's trespass, death reigned, but through the abundance of grace and the free gift of Christ, many will reign in life through Jesus. Now this is, this is kind of eschatological, I suppose, if you, if, you, if you really want to dig into this verse, where death reigned in all of our hearts because of Adam. So death reigned over us, but because of Christ's gift, we now will have the opportunity to reign with him. And at the end, like this is, this is fundamentally different now where we feel like sin is reigning over us and that's true. It's not just that Christ removed us from death's reign over us, but he removes us from it and he elevates us to a status of actually reigning with him in the last days, in the, at the end of time when heaven and earth become new. So the contrast between these two is amazing where we are underneath of death but Christ has taken us out from underneath of it and he has shot us up as far up as we can go to reign in the heavenly places with him at the end of time. So Christ's gift is not the same as Adam's. It's better. All right, my last, last section here, Christ and Adam are now compared. We have, we have Adam and Christ compared in verses 18 through 21. Therefore, and just as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's deviance many, or one man's deviance, where am I, what am I reading? One man's disobedience, many were one man's obedience, the many were being made righteous. This is why you don't read off of your notes because it just auto-corrected obedience to deviance. And I was like reading it here and I was like, that is not correct. I'm going, to st- I'm, going to, so I'm going to start that over from the Bible, not from my iPad. Right. There, at verse 18, therefore as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign in our lives through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So Paul begins to show some of the similarities between Christ and Adam in this section by using language like just as, so, for as, so by, and as also. And you'll notice that Paul has moved on from showing the major differences between the two and he's starting to show the similarity of the two. And the similarity is this, that the one act of one man determined the destiny of many. So Paul's starting to focus in on here. He's, he's moved away from the contrast and he's starting to move into the compare where he's bringing them together a little bit, saying, hey, there are some similarities here. And the, one of the similarities here is that because of the act of one man, the destiny of many has been transformed and has been changed. We see this in verse 18, therefore just as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. 
So we can see the immediate results of each man's action. Adam's action led to condemnation for everyone. Because Adam is the father of all humanity, his one action condemned all humanity to death. But Jesus' one action reversed the action of Adam and has led to justification in life for all men. Now when we see the words all men here in this section, he, he isn't like excluding the ladies, obviously. It's like, sorry, like just guys only for this. Like he's not doing that, obviously. Um, but he's also not painting this universalism thing either. He's not saying, well, Christ died for everybody and everybody's ju- therefore justified and that means everybody's therefore saved. Like he's not going down the universalism track and he's, he's also not saying that Christ justified all people on the cross so that means everybody's just gonna be saved eventually. But rather, here's what I think Paul is doing. Paul is illustrating that there is no person that is outside of the reach of the grace of God. Adam's condemnation applied to everyone. Christ's justification has the ability to apply to everybody. So if you're sitting in this room and you're thinking, I'm not good enough, or I'm too far gone, or I will never be able to have God love me, what Paul is communicating here is there is not one person who has sins Adam, Adam's sin nature in their hearts that God cannot save, redeem, transform, and restore. Not one person. It does not matter who you are or what you have done. Christ can save you. He doesn't want us to save ourselves. He's not asking you to do all of the right things so that he can love you. He loves you while you're still a sinner. And you're still a sinner because of the condemnation of Adam. But Christ's gift has brought justification to any person that comes to it to receive it by faith. Verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. So Paul shifts his wording again, but he's communicating the same thing. He moves from the language of trespass and act of righteousness to the language of disobedience and obedience. And the emphasis here is still on the fact that one man's disobedience led to sin and that one man's obedience led to righteousness. And Paul uses a lot of legal language. That's one thing I didn't mention in my intro is this is a very forensic letter in the sense that he's making a legal argument a lot of the time, Paul is, as he's working his way through talking about Christ's work in us and through us. So this is this whole idea of obedience and disobedience and righteousness and unrighteousness, he's starting to really build out this legal case, as, we're, as you'll see if you continue to read Romans, uh, that Christ has paid our debt, he has paid it in full, and we now have life because of him. Christ's obedience has given us the grounds to be made righteous. I, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it this way, and I really, I, I like this quote, look at yourself in Adam, Though you had done nothing, you were declared a sinner. Now look at yourself in Christ and see that though you have done nothing, you are declared to be righteous. That's the parallel that Paul is starting to to draw out here. You've done nothing wrong other than just be born and you're a sinner. That's That's the case. That's just what it is. If you look at yourself in Adam if you look underneath of his headship, if you look underneath his lordship, if you will, you'll see that you haven't done anything to become a sinner. But you're a sinner. But Christ, he 
gives us the opportunity, though we had done nothing, to make us righteous. That's the, that's the gospel right there, if you, want to, if you just want to know what the gospel is. Like, we haven't done anything, and Christ makes us righteous. Paul's drawing that parallel out here in verse 19. All right, verse 20. Verses 20 and 21 are kind of a little squirrely. Like, he sort of goes all over the place, but I think that there's some important stuff here. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now, verse 20, obviously, it seems like a digression, but this is one that I think Paul is making for the sake of his Jewish audience, because the Jewish audience would probably be raising their hands and say, well, what about the law? Like, you're sort of cutting out a big part of, a, you know, like salvation history here, Paul, you know, you're going from Adam all the way to Jesus. Like, what about Moses? What about the law? What about the fact that you had brought that whole thing into the middle of human history to be able to create some sort of salvation community? Like, what about Moses? The Jewish readers would have been asking, is there any room for Moses in this whole discussion about Adam and Jesus? And Paul replies in a way that probably would have freaked them out. The law was added into the mix so that sin would increase. Now, this is something that obviously we can spend a sermon and a half on. You can, you can see it through, actually, you see this a lot in the book of Romans. But Paul's already begun to cover, already covered this idea in Romans 3, 3.20. It says, the law was added to us to reveal sin in us, to define it to us, to display it to us. Law turns sin into a transgression in Romans chapter 4, verses 15. Sin has become a transgression because of the law introduced, and then we find out later in Romans 7 that the law actually provokes sin in us. Now, this would have seemed like madness to the Jewish readers. It probably seems a little confusing and frustrating even to us. But Paul goes on to say that although the law was introduced to increase sin, he says, where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. Again, he's creating another contrast He's comparing these things, two things together. He says, sin goes up. That's not a good thing. But to the, to the degree that sin rises, grace is going to abound. So like those things are, are connected. They're, cor- they're correlated. There's a correlation between those two things. God's grace is so much greater than all of our sin. And the more recognition that, recognition that we have to all of our sin, the more, the more grace God gives us to overcome it. The more we recognize our sin in our lives and our hearts, God promises us to give us more grace to overcome that sin. So if you feel overwhelmed with your sin in your life right now, God has promised to make a grace abound all the more in your life. That's what he does. He doesn't convict us to beat us down. He convicts us to give us grace. When we feel conviction in our lives and in our hearts, guess what? That's God saying, let me give you grace. Let me give you some more grace. Let me make you better. Let me transform you. Let me restore you. Let me give you the grace to overcome the sin in your life and in your heart. So when we encounter sin in our lives, when we are convicted of sin, when we are discouraged, we are not to run away from God in shame, but we are to lean into him, knowing that where sin increases, grace always abounds more and more. And then verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ 
our Lord. So he sort of lands the plane here at the end of chapter five saying, sin, just because sin reigned in death, grace also reigns through righteousness. Sin leads to death. But grace reigns in our lives and in our hearts through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul's created a contrast between two people. He's created a contrast between Adam and Jesus. So one of the questions that we, I think we should probably ask ourselves today is that whose, whose headship, whose lordship, who are we consistently living under? Are we, are we children of Adam primarily that sort of have an affinity for Jesus? Or have we been transformed? Have we been renewed? And are we pursuing God's grace as a child of him? So there are, I'm sure there are people in the room that haven't made that step to allow God's grace to be the thing that saves them, that saves you. You may think that you're saved. You may think that all the work that you're doing is getting you somewhere. But at the end of the day, your sin is way more than you just not looking at porn and you not stealing things and you not using bad words and you driving 55 in the left lane or whatever. Like, you, your sin is a rebellion against the holy God, elevating yourself over the creator. But the opportunity that we have today is that be, just because you're a sinner because of Adam's sin in you doesn't mean you have to stay a sinner forever. That grace is afforded to us through the free gift of Christ's righteousness. I'm just consistently amazed that God gives us more than we deserve. It's, it's just, it's an amazing thing. And, it, and I think that, I don't know, like I, grew, like I grew up in the church, grew up hearing this stuff like over and over and over again. I mean, and there are, the, there are times in my life where the, the impact of this sort of has ebbed and flowed. Like there've been times when I've just heard it so much, you're just like, yeah, God's grace, whatever. Yeah, yeah, we're sinners, okay, whatever. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Like it's very easy for, for us as followers of Jesus to become sort of calloused maybe to some of this language or even to some of the wonder of this. And I think that that's something that as I was studying this, even this week, going back over it, like I needed to ask the Lord to, to remind me and to show me just how amazing and wonderful it is that he came and that he died and that he took my sin and that he made me new. And the reason why I share that is because you can't manufacture that with on your own. You can't manufacture wonder for Christ in your heart. You can't manufacture an understanding of your sin in your life. You can't manufacture those things. Those are things that we have to lean into in prayer, that we have to ask the Lord for. And I've said this before, but like I often have to ask the Lord to, to really like bring solid conviction and grace into my life so that I can live a life that's full of joy. Because I often get wrapped around the axle in my own daily life and my own sorrow and my own pain and my own frustration and my own whatever. And what I really need is I need, a, I need to wake up 
to the wonder of Christ's work in me. Because what that does is it trickles down. It trickles down into every other area of our lives. It trickles down into our relationships. It trickles down into the way that we work. It trickles down into the way that we think. It trickles down into the way that we feel. What Paul is trying to to communicate to the audience here in Romans chapter 5 is that Jesus is so much better than anything else. And I think that's the call for us today is to ask the Lord to show us, to remind us, or maybe even for the first time for us to understand and realize that Jesus is so much greater. He's so much better. The gifts that he gives are amazing gifts. And just because we've received them doesn't mean that we should take them for granted. Doesn't mean that we should be treat them flippantly. It just means that we should be consistently leaning into the one who has saved our souls. So today as we as we close out, as we, as we worship through song, as we take communion together this morning, I really like the thing that I'm going to be praying for myself and invite you to pray it with me, I suppose, but is just to ask the Lord to, to, re, to rekindle that wonder and that glory and that honor that Christ deserves in my life and in my heart. Because some of these things can feel very mechanical. They can feel very, they can feel very, very just normal but we need the Lord to rekindle that in us. We need the Lord to consistently show us our sin and we need the Lord to empower us to lean on his grace because his grace is greater than all of our sin and his grace is greater than anything we can imagine. And I pray today for myself and for all of us that we would be able to thank the Lord for the amazing amount of grace that has been lavished upon us. Because it's easy to look for problems to solve in, look, in reading the Bible. It's, it's very difficult, I think, to read the Bible to just glory and, and revel in the wonder of Jesus. So let's, let's ask the Lord to do that in us today. Let's ask the Lord to help us see how amazing he is compared to where we came from or even to where we are. And let's let these songs, let this time of communion be a time of thanksgiving and repentance and renewal, even as we walk into this new year, that we would be able to have um, Christ as the ultimate goal for all of us. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. God, and I know that, honestly, we don't love, I, I can admit that I often don't love you enough. But what I'm thankful for, Lord, is the, is the fact that you love me despite my unfaithfulness. You love me despite my anxiety and my anger and my frustration. That you love us, God, despite what we've done and who we've been. And Lord, we just thank you so much that your grace is greater than the sin that's in our lives and in our hearts. And Lord, I pray that you would forgive me, that you would forgive us, God, for we take you for granted. And God, I pray that this time of communion, of taking the Lord's Supper supper together, God, I pray that you would make this a, a real special moment for us to be able to see our sin and to see our Savior. We love you, God. We ask these things in your beautiful name. Amen.